I want us to, to stop before we start engaging with what God has to say to us, to recognize that everything we teach in this place and every song we sing is sung and taught and thought about in the context of a world that's broken. So we don't just come here to forget about the world. We come here to engage with God in our world. So let's just pause. And um, Jesus, we, we love you and we trust you. And we recognize that um, according to the scriptures and according to our experience, you are right now conscious head over all things. And so we invite you to bless our world in its brokenness and to heal our world in its brokenness. We pray uh, this morning for Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn and anyone else who seeks to govern and lead our nation in a, a moment of challenge for us. We refuse to be anxious because you're Lord, but we invite you to intervene with grace and mercy. And we pray for Theresa May that she might carry grace and mercy and wisdom, and she might know the promptings of the Spirit of God as she helps lead this nation into its future. Whatever our political persuasion, we pray for her and honor her in what she's attempting to do. We pray for Donald Trump. Whatever our political persuasion, we pray for Donald Trump. We ask that he might govern with grace and mercy, wisdom and truth. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would um, minister to his life. And we ask that you'd raise up men and women in our nations who know and love you and serve your purposes so that people might be governed with justice and grace. We pray for Imran Khan today. We pray for the, um, the political and religious and emotional situation in Pakistan and we ask that you would raise up men and women on all sides of the conversation who are men and women of peace and justice who understand your way and your law. And Jesus, we pray for ourselves. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. We pray that you would challenge us and love us and encourage us. And even as we come around your living dynamic word this morning, we pray that you would speak again for your servants are listening. And we pray that we might be answers in our world of brokenness with your grace and your wisdom, your mercy and your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. For his glory, amen. If you have a Bible, it would be amazing if you'd open it to Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. And although everything else has changed around you today and we've got all these stools and etc., etc., it's a good job I wasn't uh, teaching on Jesus turning over the stools in the temple uh, this week. Uh, that wouldn't be good. Um, uh, we're going to continue our series in Mark's Gospel, and we're going to continue to look at what... I, I've loved this series, not because um, I've never taught Mark before, but just because... Actually, it's wonderful just to say, well, every week, well, who is Jesus? What's he doing? And what does it mean that Jesus is doing this? 
And what does it mean for our lives that Jesus is, is like this? And how do we follow this Jesus into this world? It's, it's profound and it's very simple stuff. And today we're going to look at a, a story that Jesus, Jesus tells. And, and, and Halloween is over. I don't know whether you like Halloween, hate Halloween, weirded out by Halloween, but Halloween is over. The thing I find really interesting is that Halloween is over and Christmas is here. Do you know, isn't that a kind of a, and depending upon your love-hate relationship with Christmas, uh, it's either good or bad, but I, I tell you what it is, it's weird. Isn't it weird that we lurch as a, as a culture from one holiday distraction to another? It's almost as if we're scared of reality. It's almost as if our lives are so beige, mundane, or, or fearful that we have to go from, right, so what have we got to distract ourselves right now? What have we got this unreality? Oh, well, let's talk about Halloween, and let's spend like weeks and weeks planning for Halloween and get ourselves dressed up, and now Halloween's gone. What can we possibly do? Well, it's, it's the start of November. It's Christmas. So therefore, we'll, we'll, you know, the whole of Edinburgh is getting ready for Christmas. Have you noticed that? Go into the center of Edinburgh. It's ready for Christmas. You know, uh, and, and some of you love that, and some of us grumpy Grinches hate that. And, uh, but but it's, I'll tell you what it is. It seems to me that we want to live in unreality. We want to live in escapism. We want to live in distraction. And I think when we come to the passage of Scripture today, Jesus is giving us a shot at reality. He's saying, I want you to understand what is really going on in this world. I want you to understand the story of this world and I want you to find your place in the center of the story of this world. We're not gonna sugarcoat this, this is just the deal. This is what's going on and Jesus tells a story. Because that's how Jesus always teaches, more or less. Once you don't understand something, he tells a story which at first reading seems really enigmatic and you're not exactly sure what he's saying but what he's doing is he's forcing you to think what does this mean? What does this mean for me? What is, this, what is this all about? I want you to get a 10,000 foot view of what God has done and what God is doing. And so he tells a story. I want you to notice before we read the story that Jesus tells this story as a direct response to people all around who are saying, what are you doing, Jesus? All the religious guys are, are, are finding Jesus really difficult because he's really challenging and they keep coming up by, and saying things like, by whose authority are you doing this? And effectively they're saying, who even are you? What are you doing? Why are you saying these things? What are you trying to do? Why are you here, Jesus? What, they, they see him healing people and they're going, what do you think you're doing? They see him declaring truth. They're going, what do you think you're doing? And they say, what, by, by whose authority are you doing this? And Jesus really annoyingly just tells a story. Just, he just tells a story. So here it is. Mark chapter 12. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck the man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. 
He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd so they left him and went away. And now, now read down to verse 28. I think this is all happening in, what you need to understand is that the last half of Mark's gospel all happens within one week. So this is like, this isn't edited highlights, this is the whole deal. This is, this, is, this is Mark going, and everything Jesus did is right here, right now. You want to understand this. So I think that the, the, the next thing we're going to read happens on the same day, at the same time, in the same conversation. Here it is. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come speak truth to our hearts and lives. Would you speak through a story that we probably understand well in such a fresh way that it makes a difference for tomorrow? We ask this in the name of Jesus for his glory. Amen. (coughs) Now, everyone listening to Jesus tell this story knows what Jesus is saying. This is not rocket science, it's not hidden, it's not mysterious. Jesus has given up the whole deal where he's trying to tell tell people not to tell him, not to tell anyone who he is. Now he's like revealing himself and he's saying, this is who I am, this is what it's all about. And, 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 And people would understand, in the Herodian period, wealthy landlords would often live far away from their vineyards and they would rent them out. And the listeners understood this wasn't a weird thing, it wasn't an unusual thing, this was a story they would understand. And, and, and Jesus is trying to say a number of things about people in the story. And it's so accurate and so clear that it gets right under the skin of the people listening to the point when they want to kill him. Okay? And what he's saying is this. God is the landlord. God owns the vineyard. He, he planted it and he's, he's trying to cultivate it so that it would bear fruit. And what he's saying to us is that God the Father made this world. It's his vineyard. All the earth belongs to him. You may be a tenant, but he's the owner. You you don't own anything. The place that you call home is not yours, it's his. You get to steward it. The salary that you bring home is not yours, it's his. You just get to steward it. The body you live in is not yours, it's his. You just get to steward the thing, which means also the world and its future does not belong to the politicians. This is great, isn't it? doesn't belong to the business people, doesn't belong to the celebrities or the money people, it's God's. Its future is God's. That's why we have hope. We do not have hope because, because we elect 
elected representatives. We have hope because it belongs to God and he is one day gonna sort it out. And the God who, who, who the scriptures declare as creator and owner is also described as father. In other words, he's not this non-caring, dispassionate, ruthless owner who's just trying to get things done. He's a dad who loves his creation and he loves the people that he hands it on to. And also in the story, the listeners would have no difficulty understanding that Israel is the vine. Israel is the vineyard. And there are prophetic words again and again and again throughout the whole of the Old Testament that says Israel is, is the vine 700 years ago. 700 years back, in Isaiah chapter five, God said, the people are like a vine to me. I tend them that they might be fruitful. In Hosea chapter 10, verse one, Israel is a luxuriant vine. And even in Jesus' day, if you went to the temple in Jerusalem, you would see carved above the fascia of the temple the, 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 uh, the carving of a vine because Israel was the vine. So when Jesus is walking out in John chapter 15 from the upper room along to where he is going to go to the garden of Gethsemane, he goes past the, 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 the fascia of the temple and he says, I am the true vine, my father is the gardener. I'm just teaching, walk and talk, I'm just teaching you stuff about this thing. So they understand that they're the vine and they're supposed to bear fruit. They understand that the tenants in this story are the religious leaders. The tenants are the people who God has set up to help the people know God and to help God know the people. They're the people who are supposed to stand in the gap. They're the people who are supposed to tend the vineyard. They're the people who are supposed to bring forth a crop and cultivate the stuff. All the wine of the kingdom of God is supposed to come because the religious leaders have been put in place so that God might grow a crop and there's no fruit. They understand probably that the servants are the prophets. If you read the Old Testament, God sent, this is just so accurate, God sent faithful people again and again and again, but they were rejected and treated badly. Elijah ran for his life, Jeremiah was mocked and thrown in a pit, left for dead, Zechariah was murdered, John the Baptist was beheaded. Side issue, that's what happens to prophets. If you've ever done one of those spiritual gift survey things in church that we sometimes do and you come out prophet, (laughs) awkward. You're not going to like you probably get your head chopped off. Unlucky. Finally, God sends his son, Jesus. The climax of the story, the center of world history. He sends his, he sends his son. That's his, his grace. Now, as the people are listening to this story, the vineyard owner is exhibiting something known in the culture as macromythia. Macromythia was a, a name for someone who had the power to extract vengeance but chooses not to. Macromythia. And, 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 and everyone kind of knew about this whole concept but no one had ever seen it. Everyone knew this was a thing, it was the story people told people, but no one had ever seen it in action that someone would actually operate like this. It's not the way the planet works. You know, you get beaten up by someone, you want to beat them up. You you always want to extract vengeance and revenge over someone who did something. And so they know that there is this mythical thing called macromythia, but they've never seen it actually operate. And then they see it in this story. I guess, 
to make it relevant. If Jesus was telling the story today at, at Central, he would probably say something like, there was a guy who had several rental properties in Marchmont. He rented them out to students. And there was this like five bedroom flat and there were six students who lived in it because everyone knows you put an extra student in the room that hasn't got a light or anything. It's actually a cupboard, but we pretend it's a room. And so there were six students living in this five bedroom flat and the guy hadn't had his rent paid. And it came around to kind of November and he still hadn't had the rent paid so he put a letter through the door and the rent hadn't been paid because the guys, they were, they were men in the flat, they decided that they'd rather, they'd rather buy Sky Sports because the Autumn Internationals were coming up and they'd rather drink beer and they couldn't afford the rent and so they decided they would rip the, 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 the demand up and they put it in the wheelie bin, you know the one outside, the big one with the, with the foot thing. They put it in the wheelie bin. And then the, the, the guy who owns the flat gets really annoyed and so he sends a representative around in December. And the representative round in December gets pushed out of the door and told never to come back again and, and, and goes back with his tail between his legs. In January, he sends another representative. This time, he gets beaten up and ends up in the royal. Now, now how is the guy who owns the flat going to respond? If it was you or if it was me, we might call the police. We probably wouldn't. We'd probably just wait until Easter when everyone went home. We'd break into the flat. We'd take all their stuff, throw it out into the street, and we'd change the locks. That's just me then. No one do that. Uh, but, 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 the, but the owner says, no, 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 I've got one last shot at it. I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect him. Surely they'll respect the boss's son. And Jesus says, do you want to know what I'm doing here? Do you want to know what I'm doing on this planet? Do you want to know why I've come and what this is all about? And he says, I've come to collect the rent. And it's a massive shock to everyone who's listening to Jesus because they didn't expect the Messiah to come collect the rent. They were expecting the Messiah to kick out the Romans. And he says, I've come to collect the rent. And it's a massive shock to you and I because we never picture Jesus as a rent collector, do we? It's not on the top 10 of the things we're expecting Jesus. We've got gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He wears a blue cloak and he has a lamb under his arm, but he's not a rent collector. He's not a debt collector. He's not come round to break your leg because you haven't paid the rent. He's not that that's what debt collectors do. But you know what I'm saying? That's not the image you have in your mind. Jesus says, I've come to collect the rent. That's what he does. I have been sent into a world that ignores the Father and rejects his kingdom and consequently and subsequently is out of relationship with itself. It's out of relationship with one another. We're out of relationship with people because we ignore the Father and we don't live the kingdom. We're out of relationship with ourselves because we ignore the Father and we don't live the kingdom. We're out of relationship with creation because we ignore the Father and we don't live the kingdom. And I have come to collect the rent. This whole deal doesn't belong to you. I've come to be to collect the rent from stewards. And, and, and before you go off and what is he talking about? This is brilliant because the subtlety is this, that the rent due is love. Look, look, look at that verse, 20, verse 28. What's the greatest commandment? 
Well, the greatest thing I want from you, the thing I want from you, the thing I created you for, the rent that is due, is that you love God with all your heart and you love people. The rent due is love. The whole rent deal is that you receive love, you experience love, and you pass on the love of God in this world. That's what the rent is all about. It looks like obedience, but it's actually love. That's what the law is always driving towards. That's what the prophets always said, isn't it? The guys who came to say, in the rent. <laughs> they said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. Jeremiah 2, verse 2 I remember the devotion of your youth, how you loved me. Return to my love. Recognize the landowner and his abundant love for you, and return to his love, and return his love. That's what God wants, that's what he's after. He's not after the, the irrational obedience of robots who just do whatever they're told to do. He wants worship that flows from love for people who were created for love. Ironically, ironically, the one thing that he wants more than anything else on this planet, he can't force. I mean, he can make you do anything. But the one thing that he wants more than anything else in the world, he cannot force because forced love is not love. He's, he's, he's creating an environment where you might live in his love because that's the deal, that's the rent, that's what's due. But he can't force it and he can't make it, make it happen. I've come to ask for the rent. See, if you pay the rent, if you can pay the rent, you can be right with the landowner, you can return to the best relationship possible, you can get right with yourself, you can get right with other people, and you can get right with the planet. But if you can't pay the rent, <laughs> and then Jesus says something crazy. He says, by the way, you can't pay the rent. So I'm also here to pay the rent. I'm here to collect the rent and I'm here to pay the rent. I'm here to die for you. And the cool thing is if you've read Mark chapter eight, nine and 10, Jesus knows exactly where he's going and what's gonna to happen to him. He says it again and again and the disciples don't like it so they keep saying, no, 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 Jesus. And he says, no, this is what I've come for. He knows what's about to happen and he still fronts up to the vineyard, to the tenants. The Son of God came to give his life for people who refused to pay the rent. And you say, well, that's all well and good, Carl, but I don't refuse to pay the rent. <laughs> I'm here in church. It's rent, rent time, Sunday. Tithes and offerings, rent. Yeah, well, but here's the thing. Yes, you do. Every time you don't let him love you, you refuse to pay the rent. Every time you don't love yourself, it's a refusal to pay the rent. Every time you choose not to love him back, it's just a refusal to pay, pay the rent. Every time you respond to his love and don't pass it on to others, you're not paying the rent. Every time you hurt someone or damage someone or defame someone created in the image of God, it's a refusal to pay the rent. Every time you become the judge of your own life or the judge of anybody else's life, it's a refusal to pay the rent. Every time you love something more than him, every time you love something more than him, it's a refusal to pay the rent. 
and Jesus dies. We killed the son. Now here's, here's where it gets really difficult. Here's where it gets really, here's where it gets uncomfortable because we, we're all kind of cool with the rest of that stuff, really. Here's where it gets uncomfortable because how will God respond? Jesus says he will bring these wretches to an end and he will give the vineyard to other people. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and it will be given to people who will produce fruit. And we really don't like this because we don't like to talk about judgment and we don't like to see God in a way that he is administering judgment. And and half of us in this room don't like it because we grew up with that all the time, I think. Because we grew up with the concept that, that religion and church was all about you know, a, a mighty, smitey God who wants to get you all the time. And we, we were saying, no, 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 it's about love. But actually, you don't have love without judgment, and you can't have judgment without love. And, and this is who God is. And actually, the thing is, you love judgment. Huh? You don't know it yet, but in two minutes' time, you will. You actually like and want and need judgment. You need justice in, 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 in your life. You want a just God. You don't want God just to be nicey-nicey. You need God to be just because, because you want the terrorist bomber to get justice. You want the sex trafficker to be judged. You want the child-recruiting warlord to be judged, don't you? And even if you're not sure about that and where you stand with all that, you want someone to say there's right and there's wrong and there's some rules. Because if there are no rules and no right and wrong, you can't experience the full love of God because you don't know what it is and you don't know where you stand with anybody or anything. You want someone who is perfect love and perfectly understands you to make some rules in this world. You want people to be held to account. I think I do. I want justice for victims. I want those who abuse and murder and, 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 and rape to have justice meted out to them. I don't mean vengeance, I just mean justice. And I want victims to have justice. And Jesus says the kingdom of God will be taken away from Israel and given to others. And I think Jesus is giving us this whole story, warts and all, to offer us hope and to give us a chance for love. But I think he's also saying one day there'll be no more chances for fruit. There is this opportunity of grace where, where, it's, where it's all available but one day I'm here to die, says Jesus. Because, because the rent has not been paid. In fact, the rent can't be paid. You can't, you can't pay. I'm here to die. I'm here to satisfy justice. Somebody has to. We know this, don't we? If there is a debt, some, someone Someone somewhere has to take the hit. Somebody. If it, that's what always happens. Jesus says, I'm here to take the hit. Literally, in my body. Your inability to receive love and to return my love. Your inability to pay. I'm, I'm here to give you another chance in my body, literally, for you to receive the love of God and return the love of God with love. And that would be a really cool sermon if we just could finish that. Well, I think it would be cool. Jury's out, really. But Jesus says one more thing, which, which when, you, when, you, when you read it, it, it sounds a bit complicated, but Jesus is saying, I'm here to die for you, and I'm here to live for you. 
I'm here to die for you, but I'm also here to live in you. I'm saving you for life. And he flips the whole metaphor and the whole conversation. And I'm much more comfortable here because it, previously it was vineyards and now it's buildings, capstones and cornerstones. And I'm on familiar ground because I've watched Grand Designs. <laughs> I know how this deal goes. <laughs> I, 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 and, and what Jesus is saying is this. If, if you're not just going to survive this life, but if you're going to thrive in this life, you're going to have to build something strong. And if you want it to be strong and straight, you need to start with a good rock. And, and we, we don't quite get it because we know that you build a foundation with concrete and you go down with piles and all that kind of stuff. But if you wanted a big building and you wanted a strong building back in the day, you just found a big rock. And Jesus undoubtedly is looking at the temple and he's looking at this huge edifice and he's going, this all got started with one cornerstone rock. You need a, you need a big rock. And, and the only way you can build life, the only way you can have life that is hope, the only way you can have life that is true, the only way you can have life that's full of love and flows with love is if you make that big rock, the first rock, the foundational rock, the thing that, that secures the whole of your life, me. That's the deal. And then he said, but it's awkward because you'll look at the rock of me and you'll think it's odd and you'll think it's bent and you'll think it's crooked and you think there's no way you can build straight off that rock because I'm rural. <laughs> I'm too single, easy to reject me, I'm too poor, too unsophisticated, never traveled much. And I keep saying offensive things in a pluralist age. I mean, it's just not comfortable to build off me because I say I am the way, the truth, the life. And it's just really uncomfortable. Because you can do everything you can. You can do hermeneutical gymnastics to try and avoid what I'm trying to say. But actually, I'm saying I'm the only way, I'm the only truth, I'm the only life. And I'm also deeply personal. And it's really annoying because I kind of rock that can say to a woman, by a well, go call your husband. <laughs> Even though I know you've had five husbands and the person you're living with right now is not your husband, I'm willing to put my finger right on the point of pain in your life and poke it a little bit. I'm, I'm just not, I'm an awkward rock. <laughs> I'm a really awkward rock. But if you want to have life in all its fullness and you want to flow with love and you want to receive love and you want to respond with love and you want people around you to encounter the love of God, you have to build your life on me, on the foundation of me, not on anything else because the temptation is, because it's an awkward rock, you'll build on anything else. And it'll end up bad. So here's the message. Jesus is the only way to live in the love of God. Stop slipping Jesus into your carefully constructed lives. That's not how it works. If you want a great marriage, then you have to build it on, on Jesus. It's just, it's just the way it works. He has to be the first rock. If you want your finances to work out, I don't mean you want to be rich, that's not what I'm saying. But if you want your finances to work out in a way where you, you have hope and trust, and the first rock has to be Jesus. It doesn't work any other way. If you want your parenting to work out in a way where they understand grace and truth, and they understand boundaries, and they understand freedom, and they become everything, all the potential that God placed in them, your kids, then, then the first rock has to be Jesus. It doesn't work any other way. I see, if you want your career to work out, 
If you want to be everything that you could be, if you want to find your yes and defend it with a thousand no's, then the first rock has to be Jesus. If it's not Jesus, you're always going to end up in a mess. I see the problem all the time. I see people getting into the middle of their self-built lives and realizing it's real weak construction because there's no cornerstone. And Jesus says, I don't want you just... I don't want you just to be right with God so that you're right with God in all eternity. I want you to have life in all its fullness. I made you for that. I want you to have joy and, and I want you to be the full potential of what I placed in you realized. That's, that's, what I, that's what I want for you. So I'm here to die for you and I'm here to live in you. I can pay the rent, but you have to let me. I paid the rent, you can go free. And Jesus says, I'm here to die for you. And I'm here to live in you. And the tenants, the religious leaders, the religious leaders, they hate this story. And they plot, how can we kill Jesus? How can we get rid of the debt collector? Because it's just awkward, difficult, exposing. And we, we listen to the story. And I don't think we go, how can we get rid of Jesus? But I wonder whether what happens in our hearts is we say, how can we sideline Jesus? How can we minimize the impact of Jesus? How can we add the additional extra of Jesus whenever we need him? But we know enough to build off the rock of us, our feelings, our reason, our emotions, our circumstance. And Jesus says, if you want to live, that's no way to live. And I'm here to die for you. Let's pray. have a sense that some of, some of us here have never really understood that the rent due is love. That all the debt collector is asking is that you receive his love. You experience his love. So you can't respond with what you've not received. And, and I think this morning for some of us it's just a case of saying, God, I, I know what this looks like or feels like, but I receive your love. Because I've tried to do it on my own, pay the debt on my own, try and make it work, and it's not working. So Holy Spirit, we just, if, that is, if that is you, just, just receive. Holy Spirit, we just invite you right now with all the love of the Father to invade hearts all over this building so that we would be recipients of the love of God and have an opportunity to reflect it. Come Holy Spirit, invade our hearts and lives with the overwhelming love of God that we might respond with love.
And then there are just a few others in, in the room that are aware that they've built superficially really successful lives. Family, finances, futures, careers. But Jesus was the second rock or the third rock or the additional rock. And the foundation is something other. And Jesus, full of love, is here and just invites, invites you to build afresh off of the odd rock, the strange rock, the rock the builders rejected, the odd rock, the odd rock that is Jesus. So as we, as we worship, just some of you are just going to say, I, Jesus, I just want to build off, I want to build off you from now on I receive your love I receive your love thank you God